Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Element. My name's Steve Pruitt, and it's a privilege for me to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. I miss all of you, and I'm sure that you're missing everybody as well, but uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to meet again soon. This morning, as I share with you, it might be a little bit helpful for you to, if you have the Bible app, the YouVersion app, to open that up on your device, to click on More, and then Events, and then Elements should come up, and if it doesn't, that probably means you're not in the same zip code, so you uh, probably want to type in 93455, and then we should come up, and you should be able to follow along with some notes and some verses uh, as we go along. Well, in my boredom in these last few days, our weeks, months, I've been enjoying a lot of crime shows lately, and I've noticed how important in those shows that fingerprints seem to be at the crime scene, and how good the investigators are at finding them. They might be finding something on a little shell casing or a weapon or even a plastic bag or a a Coke bottle or a doorknob or a shifter. There's just all kinds of places where they find fingerprints. They're just so good at it. Sometimes even a partial print can give them enough evidence to prove that a suspect was at the crime scene. They have this simple method of dusting using this little twirly brush thing and some powder. And then there's a pretty sophisticated way that they analyze everything and do the matching back at the lab. They make it look so easy, but I know that in real life there's some serious training that gets them to that place where they're that good at it. But you know, as believers, we sometimes talk about God's fingerprints on our lives. We can see his fingerprints in creation. We can see it in a family that's a blessing, a career position that fulfills us, people who love us. We figure that it is God that is blessing us in that way, and we say that his prints are on our life. But you know, the thing is that God's fingerprints don't just show up in the beautiful places. They may be a little bit hard to see, but they also show up in some of the least expected and hardest places in our lives. They show up when we're having financial difficulty. They show up in a family that's a bother more than a blessing, in a career that drains us rather than fulfills us and through people who oppose us or or even hate us and and lash out at us it's also not all that easy to see god's fingerprints in some of the events in the bible and our passage today in acts chapter 25 is one of those events actually here what we mostly see is a lot of human wickedness a bunch of hatred and manipulation and some serious politicking going on all at the Apostle Paul's expense. I am so glad that humanity has finally passed all of that trivial stuff. But the thing is that God's fingerprints are not really showing up here. You can read all the way through it. In fact, God's name isn't even mentioned in the whole passage. But I'd like to take us through the story anyway 
And then we'll back up and see if we can do some dusting for God's fingerprints and see what might be going on kind of beneath the surface in the passage. And as we do that, I'm also hoping that we'll develop a little bit better skill in dusting for his fingerprints in our own lives, just recognizing what he might be doing in our circumstances. Now, just to bring us up to speed, chapter 25 opens with the Apostle Paul in Caesarea, and he's in a kind of a protective custody. And it's actually been a couple of years. He's stuck in a loop with Governor Felix being called out, having a hearing, going back to jail, back and forth and back and forth. His friends are able to uh, meet some of his needs, it looks like, but... Um, he's really stuck in this kind of a loop. Now, after all this time, all of a sudden Felix is out and Festus is in as the new governor. And it's a bit of a restart for Paul's case. Festus wants to make nice with the powerful Jewish leadership. And so within three days of being in his position, he heads up to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders there. And what I want to do is start with Acts 25, verses 1 to 3, and it introduces the first scene in this event. Verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to am- an ambush to kill him along the way. These guys are still obsessed with killing Paul. It's the only way they think they can shut him up, and I think they're probably right. But here in these first verses, we see their strategy. They already tried to get him executed by bringing him to Felix, but Felix just kept him in jail all that time, hoping that somebody would come up with a good fat bribe for him so that he could release Paul or either release him to freedom or release him to the Jewish people. I don't know. But now with Festus taken over, they try to manipulate him, probably thinking that it should be easy because he's only been on the job three days. If they can just get him to release Paul to them or release Paul at all to stand trial in Jerusalem, they can kill him along the way and pretend that it was just a band of thugs that pounced on him and did the job for them. But Festus is smart. And he wants to do things by the book. Most commentators say that he starts out pretty good, really, and really wanting to do the right thing. Look at his response in verses 4 and 5 to the Jewish request for Paul's release. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So, even though Festus has only been on the job for three days, he knows the protocols. So he says, hey, if you want to have a trial against this guy, bring it on. But the prisoner stays in Caesarea. That's where we'll do the trial. If you want to do it, you come up there. And that had to be extremely frustrating to the Jewish leaders. It makes twice now 
that their plans to murder Paul were thwarted. So once Festus is back in Jerusalem, Paul is brought in. And we see here the enemy's attack right away. Verse 6. After he, after that is, uh, after Festus stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem <clears throat> stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Lots of charges, zero proof. Now listen to Paul's defense in verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Now this is the shortest of Paul's five defenses that he gives in the book of Acts that Luke writes about. It's only one sentence, even though the charges that the Jewish leaders were bringing were said to be many and serious. The idea is that they just continued to pepper Festus with these charges against Paul. But Paul just says very simply that he has not dissed the laws of Moses in any way. He hasn't defiled the temple, and he hasn't tried to subvert the Roman government, period. That would have been a pretty cool mic drop moment if they just would have had mics back then. I don't know what they would drop, but that was uh, an amazing short testimony and a complete defense. It's all he needed. Now, that puts Festus in a little bit of a tight spot. Notice how he responds in verse 9 with a question. Verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Here's Paul's response, verse 10. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Well, Paul knows his rights as a citizen. And here is where he cashes in on them. He says, if I've done something that's death worthy, then fine. I am not afraid to die. You won't get any objection from me. But these are bogus charges and you can't turn me over to them. I appeal to Caesar, which is like saying, I'm throwing down my Roman card and showing you that I am a Roman citizen and I want to stand before the Supreme Court. That is my right. That is my request. So legally, Festus has to respond if he wants to keep his job anyway. And so we see that in verse 12. It says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now this would have made the Jews even more angry, but it does give Festus a way out. He could get rid of the Paul problem and throw up his hands to the Jewish leaders and just say, hey, what can I do? He's made his appeal. The law is clear. 
my hands are tied. Well, we're going to see how this story plays out in the weeks ahead as Aaron continues through the book of Acts. But for today, I just want to do a little bit of dusting for God's fingerprints in the story. As I said earlier, God isn't even mentioned anywhere in this scene. On the surface, it just looks like evil people are doing their evil stuff and Paul is suffering because of it. But if you expand the dusting a little more into the larger Acts story, you see that here God is protecting Paul. This is a case where God is using an unbelieving governor to protect his people. And this is one of the big reasons why God has set up governments to protect citizens and to punish criminals. Romans 13 says that the rulers that exist have been established by God and that they are God's servants to do you good. But if you do wrong, it says, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. That's why we are to honor and submit to our elected officials and other leaders, our police and our military that are in charge of protecting us. Because even if they aren't believers themselves, and even though they don't always get it right, God has them in his hand. Proverbs 21, 1 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God's fingerprints are on the governing officials. He's not causing their unethical, self-serving behavior. But he is so powerful and so smart that he can even use those behaviors to move history in the direction of his will. Another thing that's not evident from these verses is that God is there accomplishing just what he said he would do through Paul. Way back in Acts chapter 9, the Lord spoke to Ananias, who didn't really want to talk to Paul, but he told Ananias uh, that he was to share with Paul. And he was the first one who ever shared the gospel with Paul, as far as we know. Um, Acts chapter 9, verse 15 says, uh, Go, this man, that is Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This was what God was going to do in and through Paul. Paul was to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to their kings. And also Paul would suffer for the sake of Jesus. So even though it's human jealousy and sin that cause his imprisonment and all of this stuff to happen, God's fingerprints are actually all over it. In chapter 23, just a couple chapter, chapters previous to where we are today, God spoke directly to Paul and says, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So Paul knew full well that he was meant 
to head to Rome. And it may be that he just sees this not just as an opportunity to save his own life, but an opportunity to get a full escort to the very place where God was calling him. Later, after he made it to Rome, he wrote some letters uh, from prison, and he wrote one to the church of Philippi about all the opposition and troubles and suffering that had gone on during his whole ministry, and you would expect him to say at that point, man, I didn't sign up for this stuff. I wish it had turned out better. But no, he said in Philippians 1.12, He said this to them. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, that's the Roman palace guard, and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, he says, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So, His imprisonment gave an opportunity for hardened Roman guards and all levels of leaders to hear the good news about Jesus as Savior. And Paul even says, because of my chains, the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. He didn't say, in spite of my chains, these things happened, but because of my chains, these things happen. So rather than sitting around whining about all the things that he couldn't do, he celebrates what God is still doing, moving the gospel forward just as he had promised he would do. Paul is confident that God has been there all along at work in and through his life. And if God is at work, Paul is content, not a bad attitude for us during these times. Now, it's not all that hard for me to see God's fingerprints in Paul's circumstances, especially once I look at the bigger picture in the book of Acts and understand that this was actually the plan. But sometimes... In my own life, I don't always know the plan. And sometimes it's not so easy for me to see his fingerprints in my own circumstances, especially while I'm going through something really hard. But I have to say that through the years, I've gotten a bit better at it. Like so many things, practice makes us not really perfect, but better at this. A musician gets better at hearing the chords in a song that he's listening to. A chef develops the ability to smell or taste even the tiniest amounts of spice in food. And a mechanic gets better at figuring out what that weird noise is in your car. Something that totally puzzles you, he can just say, oh, that's a loose Caddyshack under the Oberschaber because of his experience in seeing those things. And those same kinds of skills are learnable when it comes to dusting for God's fingerprints. If you are a believer, you really can get better at seeing him at work behind the scenes. And I want to share with you just a few things, not an exhaustive list by any means, but just a few things that might help you get a little bit better at that. And the first thing is simply to become familiar with God's fingerprints. 
That is, get to know his ways. We do that by reading good biographies about missionaries or other godly people. By hanging out with people who walk with God, which is something that our gospel communities are so good for. As you see God's interactions in other people's lives that you're close to, it helps you to recognize his work in your own life when you go through a circumstance. But most of all, so that's a good way, but most of all, we, and most accurately, we see God's fingerprints by opening his word. In his word, God reveals both his character and his ways. Sometimes by straight up just telling us what he's like and what he's doing, but also sometimes just through his interactions with people in the Bible. And as we become familiar with how he's acted in the lives of others down through the ages, it helps us to recognize his workings in our own lives. So that is one good reason in itself to get into his word regularly. The second thing that helps us get better at recognizing God's fingerprints is that is when we believe that God is at work. When we believe that he's at work. Now, believing doesn't make it so. But it does tune your heart and your spiritual eyes so that you have a better chance of seeing that it is so. If you don't even think that he's working on your behalf, then you're just not likely to see his handiwork. You're not looking for it, so you're not going to notice it. Romans 8.28 assures us, of this. It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you catch that? God is at work in all things. His prints are always there, working for the good of the believer. And that good in Romans 8, keeping it in context, is that he is conforming us to the image of Christ, making us more like him and making sure also that we are preserved and end up with him in heaven. Everything is moving in that direction, no matter how many dips and twists and turns our lives take along the way. God is going to pull that off and he is always at work moving things in that direction. As believers, we have some specific promises that God is going to carry out no matter what happens or what we're going through. One of them is that he will always be there. Hebrews 13.5 says that he will never, ever leave us nor forsake us. He's always present, that means, in every scene. And everything we go through is being woven into the grand scheme of making us more like Jesus and getting us to heaven. If we understand and we believe that, it's much easier to see how he might be working in our lives right now. Well, the third thing that helps us see his fingerprints is if we can kind of dust off the clutter at the scene. If we are focused on ourselves, on our sin, our worry, 
our envy or our anger, or we're focused on just blaming others and saying they're the cause of our problems, then it is going to be super hard to see God's fingerprints. Those things obscure God's work and keep us in the dark. It's not that he's not there. It's just that we can't see it because we are preoccupied with those things that block our vision. If we can set those things aside, it'll make it easier for us to see the big picture of what God is doing and maybe even the little things that he's trying to teach us along the way. Fourth thing that could be helpful is that we need to process the scene. Kind of like getting back to the lab and analyzing all the evidence that's come in. As you go through your circumstance, good or bad, what you do is you think of what God might be doing in it. Then you compare that to what you know to be true about him in his word and what he thinks about things. And then you could even at that point start listing the possibilities that come to mind and start asking him for wisdom for you to know what it is that he's trying to do. He could be disciplining you for messing up. But you want to be careful not to think that tough times always mean that you did something wrong. That's not always the case. Another possibility that is that he might be wanting to reveal himself to you in some way. First Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of those whose heart is blameless toward him. He is looking everywhere, all over the earth even, to see where he can help people who need him and who trust him. So maybe in your circumstance, he's wanting to show you his sufficiency or his strength, his ability to take care of you. Or there's another possibility, a third one to consider as you look at your situation. And that is that maybe it's not even about you at all. Maybe, like he was doing with Paul, he's doing something in your life to show himself to others. It might not even be about you. He could be using your circumstance to get someone else's attention and not even yours. Or he could just be using you as a player in his overarching plan to reach the world with the gospel, just like he was doing with the Apostle Paul. There are all kinds of possibilities of what God might be doing. And we might not ever know everything that he's doing in us and through us. We may only get it right part of the time even. But as you consider some of these things and you ask him for insight and for wisdom and you pray that he won't let you miss the lesson that he's trying to teach you, you have a pretty good shot at seeing at least some of his fingerprints in your life. And you have the opportunity then to grow from the things that happen instead of just growing bitter. 
I don't think it ever becomes a science, but it is more like an art. And with practice, you can get better at it if you stick to it. As I think about this current pandemic climate we're in, this crazy time we're in, I can't help but wonder often just what God is doing through it and where we're going to end up as a society when the dust settles and it's all over. But as I look at Paul's situation and I see how God was moving history forward all through those times in his life, he wasn't putting his plans on pause. He was actually using those things to move his overall plan ahead. That gives me confidence that even this time that we're going through now is going to turn out in the direction of God's will. It will not be a negative blip on his screen, even though it's a negative time, a harmful time and all of that. We will see that God is so smart and so powerful that he's even able to use this to turn things in the direction of his will. And if we can focus on that and think about what God is doing in us and wants to do through us and even the things that he's doing for us, even in the middle of this, maybe we can keep our sanity and our hope and even be somewhat useful during these puzzling times. Well, I hope that all of this is helpful to you as it has been to me just to refresh my mind on these things. Lord willing, Aaron is going to pick up the story there next week. Um, But, you know, each Sunday we like to celebrate communion together. And I really miss being able to share it in person with all of you. I would say that communion points to one of the clearest fingerprints that God has ever laid down ever left us. It reminds us that God has actually shown up at the scene of our crime and he's taken the charges that were against us and placed them on his own son so that he could pay the penalty of our sin for us. The bread that we share reminds us of his body that was given for us and the juice that we drink in communion or the wine reminds us of the cost of our salvation, the precious blood of Christ. And one thing that we can take from that scene of Christ's death today is this. If God has gone so far as to sacrifice his own son so you could be saved, you could be preserved, you could make it all the way to heaven. Doesn't it make sense that he's going to keep his hand on us until we make it all the way till the end goal? Paul says pretty much the same thing in Romans 8.29 where that Romans 8.28 continues where he says this, How shall he who offered up his only son, not also along with him freely give us all things. If God is for us, who can be against us? And as you think of what Jesus has done for you and the level of commitment that God has made to you through his death, let that encourage you that no matter what you're going through, you are never going to have to walk through it 
alone, no matter what or how serious the circumstance is. Let that assure you that God will always be there supporting you with his strong hand until you breathe your last breath in his presence. Well, thank you for listening. Um, Just a couple of things. Uh, If you are prepared to give, there are still ways that you can do that. You can go online and follow the prompts and do your giving that way. Uh, We are going to get back into worship uh, in just a few moments, you're welcome to uh, stand with us or sit and just uh, worship with us as we continue the service. Would you join me in prayer and we'll close. Father, we're thankful for the overwhelming evidence you've given us that you saw our sin, you saw our predicament, you saw our helplessness to save ourselves. Then you intervened. You came to earth as one of us so you could take the penalty for our sin upon yourself. So you could redeem us and restore us and so you could secure our future in heaven. Help us as we go through this puzzling time to remember your love for us and to look for your fingerprints on our lives. Help us not to miss the lessons that you want us to get in the middle of all of this. And also, Lord, help our lives to reflect to others the hope that you've given us in Jesus and help us to be ready always to share that hope with others. In our precious Savior's name we pray. Amen.